Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 101 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I spent episode 100 talking a bit about Molly and her foundation as it relates to my upcoming book, Motherland. And so as I was explaining to Gracie the podcast episode, because she was in and out as I was recording it, I got to explaining the book Motherland and how I had used the analogy of a vast prairie in that large, large area, all versions of mothers could exist. We had a wonderful conversation about that. Of course, that brought us into in vitro fertilization, artificial insemination, surrogacy, all the different ways that people can create life and become parents. Nothing like this is without contradiction and conflict. Some people believing, yes, it should be true, and others believing it shouldn't. And when it comes to the reproductive health of women and of women's bodies in general, the desire by the largely male religious organization administrators, priests, popes, such, politicians, presidents, governors, Supreme Court justices. When it comes to the control of women's bodies, this largely male, often white Christian majority has a lot to say about it. So before starting my, my episode one-on-one on Jack, my sweet little IVF baby, I did some research. In general, the only religion that's hard for against abortion for sanctity of life issues is Catholicism. When you look at the religious writings and other religions, as a method of birth control, all religions condemn abortion. And I think that goes more to the sanctity of how we treat potential life in our bodies. There are more humane ways to go about preventing conception. When you look at biblical writings, not necessarily the political view of said religion on the subject. Most religions acknowledge that there could be medical issues, that there are other reasons that the pregnancy must end, When you look at interpretation of writings written thousands of years ago, the Bible can't talk about medical conditions. Those things weren't even known in the times of Jesus and those early, early years of recorded humanity. Women lost their babies because they were cut up with a sword or they got in a fight and the baby was killed in in a fight. The reasons that babies were killed in utero are very different in biblical times. But they were killed often, and they were killed often as a political stance. They were killed often as punishment to the mother or to the father. So in terms of right to life and sanctity of the unborn, that wasn't big in early Christianity anywhere. The sanctity of the mother, especially in the Bible, the mother was considered a life and the unborn fetus considered a property. And so without the life, there is no property. And so if there's a medical issue that would condemn the mother to death in 2023, then aborting the fetus is fine in the eyes of God. And my own religion the Baha'i faith, which doesn't take political stances on anything, essentially says the same thing. This is an irresponsible method of birth control. It's not okay. However, things happen where you need to make a decision. I think a baby Gordy in my belly, I prayed and prayed and prayed hard on what to do about that. And I feel very strongly that I did the right thing. He would not have lived minutes outside of my belly. His little life has saved others. Does that mean I may not have to answer to it when I get to heaven? I'm sure I have to answer to a lot of things when I get to heaven. IVF somehow falls under this category, and in all of the political ramblings around women's rights and the right to life and freedom, the right to choose and all of this, 
The sanctity of women is invisible here, but what's becoming a part of this is IVF, in vitro fertilization. So there are lots and lots of ways that people who can't get pregnant can have a baby. You can have a sperm donation where you artificially inseminate sperm into you. You can have egg donation where somebody has their eggs extracted and fertilized and put into you. And well, that's sort of IVF, but you can have uh, egg donors. Then you can have in vitro, which can be your own eggs and your own sperm put into a Petri dish. Oh, you can have both donors, frozen embryo adopt. And there are many, many ways to go about this. And for the most part, all religions are supportive of it, with the exception, again, of Catholicism. Any sort of kickback on the IVF process doesn't come against women. Here's where this is pretty important. It's more an illustration of the sanctity of family. And that when you look at the family, parents, mother, father, parent one, parent two, in most religious writings, it's mother, father. And then the children that are, that are created from that union and all the love that goes into creating children, one would hope. That is what appears to feel threatened by the process of IVF, that the baby is the result of lovemaking. It's the result of a science experiment in a laboratory. Well, having spent a couple of years in the IVF reality, there is more love in those doctor's offices than probably in any bedroom I ever, I've ever been in, if that makes any sense at all. Not that I've been in a lot of bedrooms, but you know what I mean. The IVF procedure isn't done without a lot of thought and prayer and sadness and frustration. When you read about women who are barren, which was the term used for women who couldn't make babies back in the, in the biblical times, God had incredible love for them, felt very tender for them, we felt bad for them. Because when the Bible tells you to you know, be fruitful and multiply, that's what you think you want to do. Now, the Bible was written 2023 years ago, right? So things are very different now. In my own process, I never once thought that IVF was a mortal sin. I have a friend who's profoundly Catholic. She informs me that it is, which means according to her, I'll burn in hell forever, go to purgatory, or maybe I can go to confession and be absolved of the whole thing. I don't know. I'm not trying to be snarky, but I do know that my own process, my own journey was full of love and prayer and meditation and questioning and thoughts and process and procedure and medical tests and all of it. And do I feel like Kenny and I created that baby? I do, because it was months and months of doctor visits and medical tests and procedures and egg retrieval and sperm retrieval and all of these things to create this child. Most religions also say that IVF is completely fine. No questions asked if it's the parent's genetic material, the sperm of the dad, the married couple, and the eggs of the mom. So now we have an infertile couple because the wife had cancer and has no eggs or the husband, a sperm that don't work or whatever it is. Are these people just supposed to accept the fact that they can't have babies? And again, most religious readings and political stances on this are very vague. It really is left up to the couples to make these decisions, to say their own prayers and make their decisions. With the exception of some hardcore Christianity, Christian religions, including Catholicism, all others just say this is for our own followers and this is not some worldwide edict that we're imposing on other people. It seems to be in white man America that this absolute cut and dry idea that the woman is voiceless in all of this. I know this has been a bit of a contentious and politically driven beginning to my little story, my little podcast episode about Jack, but I've been listening to this podcast called The Genius Experiment. And then within it are some different stories. And the first story was called Biohacked, Family Secrets. And it talks about a group of people who have the same biological father because they have the same sperm donor. And it was back in the late 70s and early 80s when the first test tube baby was born in England, the first baby ever conceived outside the womb. And 
would this baby grow and become a normal person? And would it have a soul? And, you know, all these things that people that are very, very, very caught up in the religious implications of creating children would be caught up in. But there were no control mechanisms set in place for sperm donors. It was often medical students looking for money, easy way, part-time job, donate your sperm. What happened was you'd have one sperm donor inseminate 50 or 60 women. So now you have 50 or 60 babies that are half siblings. So in the age of 23andMe and Ancestry DNA, these people are finding each other. This podcast was the story of these two girls. They sort of went to the same high school, grew up near each other, and they ended up being half sisters. And so they found their sperm donor father through Ancestry DNA or 23andMe. They found a cousin and they got talking and then they looked at his social media and found their father. And they reached out. And so, of course, here's a man that doesn't have children, doesn't want kids, but realizes with all the technology, he's a doctor and a physician, that if he actually fathered any children, they're going to find him. And I believe there's a Facebook group with this group of siblings now that's upwards of 20 people. So when you look at the implications of the family dynamic and what this family means, having hundreds of people that come from the same father or the same egg donor mother, it's not quite as easy for women to donate that many eggs as it is for men to donate sperm. The implications that can be pretty significant. And this is where I think religions hold back. It isn't some mortal sin that's going to banish you to hell. I find that threat to be something used to place fear in people. So they obey out of fear. They don't obey God. They obey somebody that has decided they know what God means. So anyway, I listened to the whole thing. Really got me thinking. So in my own process, I did a ton of research. You know, there are times I think, I don't know if I could go through having another baby or if anyone would let me. Maybe I could adopt the baby, but I also know that there are hundreds of thousands of embryos out there that are free to be adopted, that are just little souls waiting for a body to grow up. All religions believe that conception is when the soul is placed in the body. So if you believe that you have a soul, that the entity that is you is separate from the physicality of you, that's put with you at conception, which means there's little souls frozen in freezers around the world waiting for their chance to live out their purpose and experience their life here on earth. So... I actually think if I could do this again, I might just adopt an embryo, just give a baby a chance to be born and live outside of a freezer. I'm not promising that I'm having another baby. Trust me, I'm going to be 60 in a few days. I don't know. <laughs> or I'm already 60 by the time you hear it. So back to Jack. So I have kept all of my genetic secrets secret. All of the steps that Kenny and I used in the creation of Jack are our business. And quite honestly, Jack's business. There are also, and I will say this to maybe throw a hint out there. There are all sorts of experimental procedures going on that are not sanctioned, but the way you find out if they work sometimes is to do them. And so it is a lot easier for somebody my age to have their very old baby than it might've been 20 years ago. I'm going to leave it all at that. So I keep that aspect of my journey secret because it's nobody's business. First of all, there was an article written about me. I shared it in a podcast episode by a quote unquote woman's website in Texas. The author of the article blasted me for not sharing more information and calling me rich and entitled. And of course I can have a baby because I have money and I can travel to New York because I have great insurance. You know, I was piss poor on Medicaid when I had that brain surgery. Anyway, people have a lot of opinions and I realize that. In the book, Motherland, I talk about Jack. I talk about how insulted and hurt I felt when I went to my first OBGYN appointment after Molly's death and shared with this woman that I wanted to try to have a baby and she just blasted me. It really hurt me. It made my appointment with Dr. Shottery that much more poignant because he was just supportive all the way. In the process of IVF, every doctor, every physician I met, a facial expression gives away a thousand words. And there were some women 
it's amazing, women, that I could tell by the look on their face that they were guarded and that they had a lot of questions for me and felt like I was out of line to do this. And how dare I? And, you know, I think I always say that we're all entitled to how we feel. I don't like people telling me what to think or what to do or how to feel. And so I'm certainly not going to do that. I'll always share how I feel. Do I like the fact that I'm heavily judged by people? No, but I can't control other people. I am practicing the mantra that it's none of my business. <laughs> so I try to leave those things alone. Here is what I have to take away and what contributes to me as a mother to Jack. My biggest takeaway is that Jack was supposed to be here. We had some company over yesterday in a swimming pool and they have two daughters and a son and the son is the youngest. And one of the little girls said, if Molly hadn't have died, your family would just be like our family, two girls and a boy. To which I replied, well, if Molly hadn't have died, maybe I wouldn't have had the dream and maybe Jack wouldn't be here. To which Kenny replied very, very quickly, Jack was supposed to be here. He would have gotten here somehow. And I absolutely believe that to be true. Now that he's here and now that I see him in action and I watch him and I listen to his little words, I feel that way very strongly that he was supposed to be here. Molly or not, that maybe Molly's death precipitated it. Maybe it made it happen the way it happened. I don't know. But he was supposed to be here. My IVF process started against every odd there was to go against. My age, my financial situation, my mental health, physical health at the time, everything that was going on in my life, my social health, Roy and Doug and Molly being dead and all of that. I had everything going against me in this process. I firmly believe that in many ways, Jack saved my life. I know he saved my life from the brain tumor because I wouldn't even tried to fix my head if it weren't for trying to have Jack. Some of my biggest takeaways in the IVF process for me was the amount of love, support, empathy, sympathy, encouragement that exists in that community. Everybody is on your side. Everyone is cheering for you to conceive that baby. Everyone. From the receptionist who answers the phone or checks you in, to the nurse that draws your blood, to the doctor that orchestrates the whole thing. What everybody wants is what you want, a healthy baby to arrive. I know that my doctor, Dr. Cardoni, was incredibly invested in me having this baby. And I don't know why. He doesn't know me. I went in for my appointment in 2017 and I'm back for two years because I couldn't afford it and I wasn't at all ready. I know during those two years, over and over, Doug would try to talk me out of it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'll never see you. Don't do it. You know, okay. I know Roy told me he thought I was nuts. I can't believe you want to do that. You know, you're almost free. Like somehow having a child holds me down. We had actually talked about it right after Molly died. He had said, why don't you and I have a baby? I don't think he meant it. I think he wanted me to stay with him is what I think because he was so very bizarrely unsupportive of the whole Jack scenario. He knew I wanted to hear it. Molly had just died. When I actually started the active process, when all the testing was done, all the screening, all the blood work, all the EKGs and brain scans and tumor removals and colonoscopies and mammograms, when all of those things were done and we were given the green light, the IVF process itself was fantastic. Batches on the butt, injections in the butt, pills in the morning, pills at night. It was wonderful. It just puts on the outside what the body does miraculously on the inside. When you go in for your, they call it an IVF transfer. It's when they take the little embryo out of that petri dish and put it inside of you. That may not be lovemaking, but when you have a baby that's made up of you and a person that you love, right? When you have this baby created in love and it's placed inside of you and you watch it float across the screen, no, it's not the darkness of a room in the marriage bed or a hotel room after too many drinks at a wedding. No, it's a lab with a doctor in there and a nurse. 
in an ultrasound tech, you know, they're all in there doing their thing, right? The group effort, but loving, purposeful, centered, absolutely. This was a method of being a mother that, that I never, ever in my life thought I would participate in. Sometimes I think it was successful because it wasn't so much about me being successful, like, oh, look at Barb, yay, Barb, but more about look at the process. Look at what the human body can be capable of. Look what love can do. Look what love and prayer and mindfulness and living in the moment, executing the right steps, the right time can produce jingle jangle. Another thing I looked at in the religious review of IVF are children produced of IVF accepted into religions. So some religions have, have very different guidelines. For example, if you're Jewish, your Jewish religion or your Jewish identity comes from the mother. Your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. If your mother is not Jewish and your father is, it's different. I can't speak to it because I don't know the details. If you have an egg from a Jewish mother and sperm from a Jewish father, but it's grown in the body of a Gentile, right? Is that baby still Jewish? You know, these are the scientific details that are left out of the simplistic words from God. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Children come from God. All religions believe that. But so does technology. So does medical practices. Everything we do with humans, if you believe this way, everything we have comes from God. A lot of you are atheists, and I'm not saying that I necessarily look at it this black and white, but our ability to perform IVF, it's a God-given gift. You know, it, it's not separate. It's not something that we made up without God-created brains and God-created science and all the things that God-believing people would contribute to God. That's why I include it here. I am a firm believer that science and religion can't agree without one another. When I say religion, I don't pinpoint one religion. I guess I think more God. Religion would be God to me. Science isn't always all right. and Religion isn't always all right. But where they agree is perfection. And that's sometimes where we look. And where one can't fit or the other can't fit is when it's the other one. Even in the Catholic religion, child born in IVS is loved and cherished in the church. Catholics have this belief in original sin that you're born sinful. And if you don't get baptized, you're going to never go to heaven, no matter what wonderful life you lead. Pism in the Bible happens when, as an adult, you dedicate yourself to Jesus or to God. You ask for forgiveness for your sins, and you baptize yourself in the water of the Lord and devote yourself to living a life dedicated to Christ. You can't make that decision as an infant. Some religions have infant baptisms. Many don't. Many Christian religions, lots of Bible-based churches, the Mormon church, you're baptized when you're old enough to understand what baptism means which makes a lot more sense to me. I think somebody who tells you babies are sinful is trying to scare you into believing something. That's what I think. All religions accept those babies as products of love and God and all of that. It's interesting to me because also in this podcast is all this, let's take human matter, sperm and eggs and all, and genetically engineer quote unquote perfect bodies. So now we're messing with nature. Of course, we're messing with nature already. Taking an egg from here and a sperm from there mixing it up over here, putting it in that lady over there. Is this a pathway to things that we aren't ready to handle and manage? Absolutely. One of the last conversations I had with Molly, which doesn't surprise me now, is she asked me what I thought of IVF and she asked me what I thought of genetically engineering babies to look a certain way. I want my daughter to have blonde hair and blue eyes and big boobs and a little waist and long legs and white teeth. Okay, well, part of what makes any natural environment work is the randomness of nature. Nature is random. It's not the same. Six puppies in a litter are very unique, different puppies with different personalities and different energy levels. That difference, that variety is necessary for the health of the species. We can't all be the same. Look at dog breeders that breed the same period of dog 
the same mom and dad over and over and over again. Eventually those puppies, if they're all related to each other, they're born with issues that wouldn't exist if the randomness of nature was allowed to be random. As much as we like to overthrow science sometimes, it always comes back to the mother and the father and creation of the child and all that goes into that. Sometimes I read this stuff, I have to be honest, it makes me a little nervous. Like, what am I going to have to say to God when I get up there? And I also feel that I was supposed to have Jack. And so everything I went through was exactly right. That I was supposed to do everything I did. In my process of IDS, I also had the opportunity to meet some amazing women. Amazing women. You sit in a waiting room and, you know, again, the facial expressions, they just give it right away. I met a woman and she was on her fifth round and they were running out of money and they were just so stressed out and sad and anxious. You know, here I am. And her comment to me was, probably worked for you on the first time. Well, it didn't. It took two tries, but it worked. I checked in with her a little while back and she ended up having a successful IVF baby and they have their baby now and are actually pregnant with another one. So sometimes it takes a while and it works, but I do know that any kickback I've gotten on social media around having Jack at my age and the IVF process and my unwillingness to share every, every little detail about it can be hard for people. And I find that the people it's hard for are those that are very, very rigid in religious beliefs or have tried and failed again and again at having a baby themselves, either through failed IVF or not finding a partner or never having the chance. And so again, I don't live inside of them. I can't be them. I can't judge them for how they judge me. That's how they feel. In motherland, when I talk about how my motherland is bookended by two babies in heaven and two babies here, and the story motherland itself starts with Molly's death and concludes with Jack's birth, right? And all that went on in between there, all that went on in between there are the countless times baby Gordy came up and was talked about and remembered and his short little life looked at and analyzed and memorialized. Gracie, who my biggest thing when I had her was to give her a normal life because mine had been so fucked up. And boy, if, if <laughs> boy, did I fail at that because her life has been anything but normal. But having said that, in many ways, she's had a much better childhood than I did, even with dead Molly. And that's hard to say. This is nothing worse than losing your child or your sibling, your best friend. And then I have these babies in heaven. Gordy's in heaven, Molly's in heaven, Gracie and Jack are here. I definitely take the term mother and color it a variety of colors. I think if I look at the word mother as it relates to me, it's plaid with paisley trim. That's how I look at it. It's not one color. It's in multitude of colors. As I watch Jack grow and develop, I'm amazed, utterly amazed how smart he is and how intuitive he is and how he knows things that I don't think two and a half year old kids should know. Turns of phrases and vocabulary and identifying things and his memory, his memory is profound. Somebody asked me if he talks about Molly and he talks about Molly all the time. He understands she's not a person. He understands that she exists in the belongings that remain and pictures. Sometimes early in the morning, not so much. I think it's going away because he's getting older. I'll stare at the ceiling and talk to Molly. I'm going to miss that when it disappears completely. Maybe he'll keep it. I don't know. So in my book, the primary purpose of the book, of course, is to share my experience in losing Molly, as much of it as I could share. But I also talk a lot about Jack and about the medical profession, the aspects of it that were really there for me that I love and thank and have gratitude for. I talk about the process of creating Jack and what that was like. I talk about my family's reaction. You know, the other piece, when I look at religious writings around these things, and the biggest concern is the sanctity of the family. It's not like an IVF child ruins the sanctity of the family, but when we function under a given, 
Anything that changes, it can make things feel uncomfortable. It's why change is so hard. So if we function under a traditional family of a mom and a dad, a handful of kids and a pet or two, then anything that doesn't look like that is scary. Some of the early, early receivers of sperm donation, artificial insemination, told nobody because they were humiliated by it. They didn't want anyone to know that they couldn't make the baby themselves. And it was just demoralizing to the fathers and the mothers felt uncertain about it. That's sad to me. We should be more supportive of each other, I think. I think Jack and his birth is very, very well accepted. He's a bit of a little movie star around here. And I think his journey and his life will be fine. I think that he will grow up and do whatever it is he's supposed to do because he's supposed to do something. What I was getting to a second ago before I got off on that little tangent is family. 99.9% of Jack's reality has brought our family together. Kenny and I will forever have a, a very strained and somewhat damaged relationship, but we do okay. We're good friends. We're good roommates. We're good partners. Gracie is okay now. This was very hard for her at the time. And I think giving her the space to be unokay with it was important. I think she needed to be able to be mad. Extended family has been fine. Kenny's mother loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Just loved all of it. She got to hold Jack. Jack was held by his 96-year-old granny babe. I love that. And Kenny's, Kenny's family, I mean, maybe they talk about me behind my back. I can't worry about it. I know that his kids had a hard time and his first wife, but that wasn't necessarily because of me. That was very, very, very centered around how Katie felt about it. And again, she has the right to feel the way she wants. I won't ever tell anyone how to feel. I don't have a hard time telling people to mind their business, but that was a, a big hurdle, a big pothole in the happiness of all of this. It's okay now. I'm leery though. I have to be honest. One of my biggest reasons for wanting a sibling for Jack, and it's the reason I had Molly for Gracie, is I don't want to leave here and have him be by himself without relatives his age that he knows and loves. And you know, right now he doesn't have too many relatives his age. He has Katie's and David's kids and that's it. And I still have anxiety around that. They're all wonderful people. Don't get me wrong. But I just, you know, after a while, too much happens and any sense of safety there is gone for me. And that's just something I'll have to work on. Do I think it will be that way forever? I certainly hope not. I'm not quite sure. I'm doodling over here in case you're wondering, those who are watching. When I get anxious, I have to be something else. So I don't know. I think the big knot in my tummy around Jack is that I want him to have family. Even if it's not biological family, I want him to have spiritual family. I want him to have kids his age and people that he loves, friends, friends, friends. That's why he goes to big boy school, so he can be around other kids. And I want him to be happy. That's the most important thing, right? That he'd be happy. I can't prevent him from having bad experiences. I can't prevent sadness. I can't even really prevent trauma. We have very little control over that. We talk about wanting to give our kids these easy lives. And I think that all an easy life does is teach you that life is easy. You develop no coping skills for anything. I think I could have learned plenty without being sexually abused as a child. Thank you very much. But I also know that there is an element of me that's relatively tough because of all that I've gone through. I just have to experience that in gratitude rather than resentment or regret because that won't help me. So anyway, this was the Jack episode. Not necessarily just about Jack, but just about all the intricacies and ins and outs of IVF and women and childbirth and relationships and abortion and birth control. Birth control is largely supported by all religions, except Catholicism again. <laughs> birth control is, is often a necessary avenue for the health of the mother. It can be a financial need. You know, you really don't want to have more babies. And not all couples have good communication around using protection. I've learned a lot in researching and living this reality. How can I have a baby without having sex? <laughs> the virgin birth, right? Well, that wasn't my case, but 
It's been wonderful. And if you're a listener that's ever considering IVF, I say go for it. Even if it doesn't work, the experience is hugely, hugely gratifying and helpful. And if you have questions, other than all the details of who's Jack, is he my egg? Is he a combination of eggs? But anyway, thank you for listening. This is maybe a bit of a rambly episode, but that's okay. I'm just addressing things that are in the book and I want you to buy the book and read it. So I'm trying to give you a little tidbits of things that you'll read about. Much more detail than I share on the podcast. Next week, we'll talk to Jen, the Get Better Girl, and how I'm taking care of my body now that Jack is here. Be good to yourself, always. Be good to someone else after that. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.